Good morning. New pulpit. This is going to take a little bit of getting used to, maybe, but uh, yeah, it's a little bit taller, actually, I just realized, and that's okay. Um, hope you guys don't mind. My, I, I might need to get a drink every now and then. As you can tell while I was singing, uh, I, I, for the past week, I don't know, I, I haven't been able to get my voice above like a certain level, and I even lowered the, the key for some of those songs so that I could hit it, but uh, I, I, I was seeing on pollen.com that asthma is high. Uh, so there's a chance that that's what's getting me. Um, but welcome this morning. So glad to see you guys here on a, on a cloudy, rainy, typical Northwestern day. Um, one of the most disturbing trends in our, in our culture today is the tendency that we have to downplay every single wrongdoing that we are guilty of. Everything that we can possibly put off on somebody else, we do, even when we are unquestionably guilty. Uh, we see this in the news, right? We see this in the tabloids. We see famous people uh, putting the blame off on somebody else when everybody in the world knows. There, there's no question about it. They are guilty. Uh, it's called the blame game. And the blame game is uh, the game that we play when we uh, minimize or completely reject something that we are completely guilty of. People will say, well, you know, um, it's not my fault. Uh, my parents made me this way, so blame my parents. Or uh, I'm a product of my, of my environment, uh, so, so blame society. It's society's fault that I did such and such. Whatever it costs, whatever it takes, stretch it to the point where uh, it's not really our fault. And the ultimate message is that you know somebody else is responsible for whatever it is that we have done. And so it's not really our fault. It's, it's not, we, we made a mistake, but it's because all these, these circumstances and all these factors, you know, that, that made us who we are, uh, formed us to make that, uh, that mistake. In the corporate world, they, they actually have a, a, a name for this. It's called blamestorming. Uh, you, you know what brainstorming is? It's when a bunch of people get together and they come up with ideas. Well, blamestorming is similar. It's when a bunch of people get together and they figure, okay, how are we going to spin this off so that the blame isn't squarely on our shoulders? I mean, we're willing to take some of the blame, but let's at least put uh, the majority of it on somebody else's shoulders. Uh, that's the blame game, and it's really one of the most destructive tendencies that people have. Uh, instead of taking the blame for making uh, racist comments toward a teammate, an NFL lineman might say something like, well, you know, this is, this is the NFL's culture. This is, a, this is a rite of passage in football. And actually, it's funny because I, I had put that in my notes as an example. And I was watching an interview with this guy, Richie Incognito. I was watching him last night. And that's exactly what he said. It's exactly what he said. And I thought, I thought how predictable is that? That, uh, that, he, that he would say that, because that's what everybody does. So, of course, that was what he was going to say. Uh, instead of a lawyer admitting that his client, who is accused of murdering her child, uh, has deep and uh, you know, mental and emotional issues, a defense attorney will say, well, blame it on her father, because her father made her this way. That really was part of the defense of uh, the Casey Anthony trial, if you guys remember that a few years ago. It wasn't Casey Anthony's fault, it was her dad's fault. But then, you know, he could just pass the buck on, you know, to somebody else. Okay, it's not my fault, it's my parents' fault. And so, you know, just go, you know, pass that hot potato right on down the line. Uh, instead of seeing himself as being the one who killed himself in a boxing match with a Korean opponent, Ray Boom Boom Mancini says, sometimes I wonder why God does the things that he does. 
as if God was responsible for boxing this Korean and and taking the guilt for killing him. Uh, Instead of taking the blame herself, the Christian girl who gets pregnant outside of marriage says, I don't understand why God allowed me to get pregnant. Uh, Instead of taking the blame for murdering her two children, Susan Smith says, I don't understand why God let my babies die after she pushed them in a car into a lake and drowned them to death. Instead of saying, you're right. It's, it's my fault, I did it, I'm guilty. Adam says to God that his sin is the fault of the woman that God gave him. Now, nobody's exactly sure who he's blaming there. He says, it's not, it's not my fault, it's the woman that you gave me. So who's he blaming there, the woman or God? Either way, it's not mine. I'm passing it off to somebody else. This wasn't something that I wanted to do. Either you made me do it or she made me do it or both, but I'm not guilty. A study from the University of Illinois uh, recently conducted an experiment. Uh, It was was an experiment in which uh, these two professors asked their subjects to predict how their friends and family and, you know, significant others in their lives uh, would react if they were to break a promise, uh, stand them up, you know, show up late, or uh, fail to return a borrowed item. So the the questionnaire was, you know, how upset do you think they will get if you do these things? And the researchers then turned around and polled the, the friends and the family members and the significant others and the lives of their subjects, and then they compared the predicted score with the actual scores that the, that the people gave. You know, how upset would you be if so-and-so did this to you? And the result of the study was that most people very seriously and significantly underestimate the impact of their offense against others. According to the report, these subjects, quote, were not at all in tune with their partner's responses and thought everything was going to be okay, end quote. And the fact is, And we all know it. The fact is, the same could so often be said of us in the way that we feel, in the way that we think God feels when we sin. Our current series is titled Cosmic Treason, which is the name that R.C. Sproul gives to all sin. And we're addressing some very fundamental questions about our sin. Uh, This is one of the defining realities in our lives, which we saw last week. We do things that we shouldn't do. Even when we don't want to do those things, even when we want to do good things, we don't do the good things that we want to do, and we do the bad things that we don't want to do. Last week, we established that we are all sinners. We all sin. We're tempted. We're deceived. We're rebellious. All these horrible things. Who am I when I sin? Awful things. And so this week, we're going to be switching our perspective because that was really looking from our perspective, uh, you know, who am I from, from God's perspective. But this week, we're going to be switching perspectives and seeing, uh, seeing God's response, looking up at God and seeing, uh, you know, who is God when I sin? And the answer to that question can't come without a really good understanding of who God is by his very nature. Uh, And so we're going to be discussing three very important attributes of God. First of all, we're going to be talking about his holiness, uh, his, his holiness, his love, and his mercy. And we'll see how these three attributes, these three things come together to give us a very, uh, hopefully, a, a good, solid, coherent answer to this question, who is God when I sin? 
who is God when I sin? The fact is, you know, it's really easy for us to take this, this attitude of, you know, we'll just play the blame game. We'll put it off on somebody else. We'll take the attitude that God is actually okay with our sin. He's not really that upset about our sin. After all, if he wasn't okay with our sin, this is how we might rationalize it. If, if he wasn't okay with our sin, wouldn't he strike us dead on the spot? I mean, he can, right? He's God. Uh, you know, he, he's in control of everything. He's sovereign. So if, if he's really that mad about my sin, why doesn't he strike me dead? And you'll see atheists do things like, you know, they'll challenge God. Okay, if God's real, just strike me dead right now. Well, it would be too late then, you know, too, too bad, you know. Um, but our, uh, sorry, A.W. Tozer once wrote this. He said, we've learned to live with unholiness and, to have, and have come to look upon it as the natural and expected thing. And that's so often our attitude. It's natural. It's just the way it is. We're going to do it whether we want to or not, so you may as well just get comfortable with it and see it as the natural and expected thing. In other words, you know, what we say, our, our saying, our slogan in our culture is, to err is human. Everybody heard that? To err is human. But at the same time, we can't always err because if, if we always err, then to say to err as human is to err. It's a self-defeating statement if you apply it to all the time. Rather, there are times where we err. For some of us, it's a lot of the time, but it's, it's very easy for us to grow comfortable with our sin as we embrace this statement, to err as human. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to mess up, so I may as well just go ahead and do it. But what we need to understand is that God never, never, grows comfortable with our sin, and that's because he's holy. That's because he's holy. To be holy means, yeah, to be, to be pure and undefiled, but the primary meaning of, of God, the primary definition of God's holiness is for him to be separate. He must be separate in order to maintain his purity, and that's why the Bible tells us that God cannot even look Upon evil, he cannot even look upon our sin. Habakkuk one thirteen says of God, "You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, he can't stand the sight of sin." And this should make us think twice before doing what is evil in the eyes of God. And yet, we do it anyway. We do it. We, we, we perpetually are turning our hearts, or being tempted at least, strongly tempted sometimes, to turn our hearts to, to all sorts of things other than him. And what happens is we end up offending him in more ways than, than we could possibly cover in a sermon or a sermon series. And so this brings us to the first thing that we need to understand, and that is that God judges and condemns all sin. God judges and condemns all sin. The, the small ones, the ones that we think nobody notices, the ones that really don't seem to affect anybody, really don't seem to hurt anybody, God notices those. And, and the big ones too. He notices them all. He judges them all. And he condemns them all. There's nothing that goes unnoticed by him. Even though his eyes are too pure to look upon sin, believe me, he is fully aware. The Bible tells us he is fully aware of even the slightest sin. Now, looking at this from a historical perspective, how the, the church has, uh, has interpreted or, or viewed God's holiness is pretty interesting. In, in the 18th century, and that is in the, in the 1700s, 
everybody's heard of Jonathan Edwards and his, uh, you know, his sermon about you know, God is uh, like a man holding a, a spider above the, the fires of hell. Uh, you know, so there was this, this message that people are really, really bad and that God is absolutely furious with humanity's sin. Uh, and then in the 19th century, um, there was something of a, of a reflex to that. There was a reaction to that. Um, as, as preaching shifted its focus away from God's wrath, it stopped focusing on, on the wrath of God, the holiness of God, and, it shift, and man's depravity, by the way, uh, and how God, how God was so angry with our sin. Uh, and it shifted towards thinking, well, you know, we're not really that bad. And, and God really isn't that angry about sin. Uh, and so that was the preaching of the, the 1800s, the, the 19th century. In the beginning of the 20th century, the early 20th century, uh, preaching uh, shifted once again back to this, this focus on judgment of sin and the condemnation of sin and the wrath of God. And in the midst of this movement in the early 20th century, just 100 years ago, in the midst of this movement, there arose a group of people who, uh, who held the view that God's wrath was undeniable in Scripture. You know, you, you see it from, from the front page to the back page. You know, God hates sin. And, and they didn't deny that. They, but instead what they said is, this wasn't a picture of God's righteousness. No, this was a picture of a very serious character flaw in God's character. Something uh, was wrong with the character of God. Uh, if God gets as bent out of shape about sin as the Bible tells us, then something is wrong with God. Perish the thought. That is absolute nonsense, and we're going to cover. We're going to talk about that today. But to get a glimpse of how seriously God takes any and all sin, we actually have to turn to a story that these people would have referred to, where, where God seems to get bent out of shape about something that seems really small and really insignificant, and He takes drastic, immediate, swift action against it. Uh, this is a story from the Old Testament that has bothered critics. For years, and people who saw God's wrath as a personal defect in the, in the story of two boys named Nadab and Abihu. If you've got your Bibles open, turn to Leviticus chapter 10. And here we find this story that is going to probably shock you if you haven't read it before. It seems really harsh. It's, it's drastic. It's swift. But we see how God deals with sin here. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, we read, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire, that is, unholy fire, before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now this is a place where critics go nuts. And they'll, they'll say this. They'll say, well, you know, there's got to be some kind of natural explanation for this. What probably happened is these two guys went in there when nobody was looking, and they didn't really know how to lay the fire there or how to handle fire. After all, this is, you know, pre-scientific era. They had no idea what they were doing. And uh, so what happened is they probably put the fire in a dangerous place, and it blew up, and, and it, it burned them up. And, and so what the people were doing, this is what the critics would say, what, the, what they were doing when they wrote this is they're interpreting these events in light of their theology. In other words, they believed that God had a very serious uh, you know, position against sin, and so that must be what happened. But 
Now that we're in the scientific age, in the age of reason, we know better. That couldn't be what happened. So they'll say that. Or, uh, you know, they'll say, this is a place where we see a very serious defect within God's character. I, I know how this works. We look at this and our first response is, wow, you know, these two boys go, go in and, and, and offer unholy fire. What, what's the big deal with that? I mean, I've probably done worse things. In fact, I know I've done worse things than these two guys, and God has let me live. So how is it just for God to strike these two boys down, consume them with fire? How is that just when it doesn't seem to be such a big deal? What they did couldn't have been that important. And if that was your first thought upon reading that this morning, you've proved the point that I was trying to make just a few moments ago, and that is that we try to minimize and downplay sin as if we're not sinners, we're mistakers. We're, we're messer-uppers. We're not sinners. We, we just mess up. We just make mistakes every now and then. But, oh, we don't want to be called sinners. But what we're going to see here is that this is not a manifestation of a personal defect in God's character. And this really is what happened. It's not that these people were, you know, so stupid because it was so long ago and so they wrote it, you know, even though that's not what, uh, what actually happened. What this is, is a manifestation of God's holiness. So the first thing that we need to understand about God when we sin is that he's holy. When I sin, God is holy. He has a zero-tolerance policy towards sin because he's holy. And as we wrestle with how, I don't know, significant or insignificant this, this event right here might have, have seemed to us, I would just ask that you keep one thing in mind, and that is the fact that God does not judge by appearances. God does not judge by actions. He is constantly looking at our hearts and that is enough for him to judge. What he sees going on in our hearts, the darkness, the deception, the rebellion, that is what he is judging. He's looking at our motivations, our attitudes, our intentions, things like that. That's what we are condemned by. That's what he judges us by. So passages like this lead us to only one valid, one legitimate conclusion, and that is, that it's not that God overreacts to sin or overestimates the destruction or the evil of sin. It's that you and I, it's that humanity tends to underreact to it and underestimate how evil and destructive sin is. It's not that God overestimates. It's that we underestimate how serious sin is. And any conclusion uh, other than that is mistaken and attempts to downplay and minimize the impact the, the dirtiness, the evil of sin. So the real paradox, the real issue of confusion behind passages like this one is not that a holy God would exercise justice. That, that doesn't confuse anybody. Yeah, we would expect a holy God to exercise justice. What could possibly be mysterious about that? Just like Abraham asked, wouldn't we expect the all-knowing judge of the universe to do what is right? Of course we would. Of course we would. Whether or not God should deliver justice to people who are willfully disobedient against his authority, therefore, is not the mystery. That's not confusing to us. The real mystery 
the real thing that should blow our minds and totally uh, confuse us is why God, throughout history, has tolerated rebellious people like you and me over and over, who are guilty of cosmic treason, who are guilty of sinning against him and offending him a million times over. Remember what God warned about sin from the very beginning? He said to Adam, the the day that you disobey me, you will surely die. Game over. That's it. The day that you disobey me, game over. And unlike a video game, you don't get three tries. You don't get an extra life if you, you know, if you, if you get to some certain tree over here and know about some secret code or something. No extra lives, no extra chances. The only just punishment for sin is death. And this sentiment is reflected throughout Scripture. In Ezekiel 18.4, we read this. God says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Now I know our first reaction might be to think, well, does he really mean die? Because we've sinned, right? We've all done stuff that we knew we shouldn't do. We've all sinned. And here he's saying that the soul who sins shall die. Well, I'm still living. So he couldn't have meant die, uh, you know, so, so we look for some other explanation. We'll, you know, we'll say, well, God didn't mean literal death, maybe. Um, surely he meant spiritual death. But I don't see any room for that interpretation in the Genesis account. I mean, we're talking about a God who is all-powerful and who knows everything. And being that he knows everything, if he wanted to say, on that day you will spiritually die, or on that day you will be spiritually separated from me, he could have said those exact words, but that's not what he said. He said that rebelling against him would result in death. The fact that they didn't die on the day that they sinned against God in the garden, the day that they rebelled, reveals that God is a God who practices mercy. A God who practices mercy. Why should he have let them live? when they willfully rebelled. He had no obligation. He warned them. He gave them plenty of fair warning. It's an incredible demonstration of his great mercy, of his grace. All sin is worthy of death, but he let them live. And so when Nadab and Abihu enter into this holy place that represented before the Israel people, before the Hebrew people, represented God's presence, and when they flippantly and carelessly placed unholy, unauthorized fire on the altar, God immediately rendered justice that willful disobedience demands. Why didn't he, the question we might be asking now is, why didn't he wait until you know, the day of judgment to carry out justice? And that's a good question. You know, if, I know that if I was their dad, if I was Aaron, I would have been asking that question. In fact, I, I might have been angry uh, toward God as I, as I asked that question. But Aaron uh, happened to be wondering the exact same thing, apparently. He was questioning God's goodness. He was questioning God's justice. And so God came and spoke personally to Aaron. And so if you skip down to verses 8 through 11, we read this. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. 
It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. And so what we can gather from this explanation of sorts that God gives to Aaron is that Nadab and Abihu acted carelessly and flippantly in carrying out their duties in the tent of meeting because they were drunk. In fact, there seems to be the implication here that Aaron is the one who got them drunk. And so they went in there drunk. But because the altar ultimately represented Calvary, ultimately represented the place where God redeems man, atones for man's sin, this was basically the same as, uh, as coming to God with some other way, other, other than Calvary, some way other than the cross, coming however they felt like coming, coming flippantly, coming carelessly. And God is saying, you can only come to me by the terms that I've laid out. You see, even the smallest sin, even the sins that seem so insignificant, they all scream out, I am my own God. I'm my own God. My rights supersede and usurp the rights of God. It's like a militia you know, starting in some state and, and, and uh, saying, you know, we're not under the jurisdiction of the United States government. We've seen that happen. We've seen militias try to rise up. And what happens? The government comes in and, okay, you guys are done. You know, they've, they've raided those places. We, we would expect that the government would take exception to the idea that they don't feel like they need to live by the United States laws because they're on our land, the United States' land. Our government would be expected to deal swiftly and deal harshly with uprisings like this. We, we'd not trust our government if they didn't, if they just let stuff like that happen. But it's the same thing we do every time we sin. Every time. The sin, every sin sends the message to God, I'm not under your jurisdiction. I will make my own rules. So why did God take the lives of these two boys, Nadab and Abihu? Why did he take their lives? Well, the simplest explanation is that they were in charge of leading the worship of the Hebrew people. And that if they took these responsibilities casually, if they treated it like it wasn't a big deal, like they can just do it however they want, that's exactly what attitude the people would take on as well. So when they worship, they wouldn't be worshiping in reverence, they'd be worshiping just however they felt like it, not by God's terms, but by their own. They would have lost their reverence for God's holiness and his justice. And that's a line that people who bring God's character into question risk crossing as well. All sin is worthy of death. As Paul so famously wrote in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wage of sin is death. A wage is, of course, what we feel like we deserve for our work. And Paul's saying that if evil, if sin is a work that you have committed, the wage, what you deserve, is death. This is who God is when we sin. God is holy. And this becomes a frightening reality when we read passages like Romans chapter 1, where we read that people are, in Romans chapter 1, verses 29 to 31, people are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, 
covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That describes every single one of us, every person on the face of the planet, apart from God's saving grace. That's who we are. And in light of this assessment, which every person instinctively knows to be true, and if you don't believe me that every person knows that they are these things, look at Romans chapter 1, verse 32. That's just the next verse where Paul says, everybody instinctively knows that they are these things. Uh, but in light of this assessment, the person who understands God's holiness and understands just how incredibly seriously God takes all sin They don't ask how God could possibly oppose humanity. They don't ask how God could possibly condemn humanity or separate himself permanently from humanity. Instead, the person who understands God's holiness wonders how or why in the world God could redeem or would redeem anyone justify them, bring them back into relationship with him, and how he could possibly do all of this without somehow, in some way, compromising the integrity of his own character. How could he do this? Why would he do this? And our answer is very simple, and yet it's incomprehensibly profound. And I say that it's incomprehensibly profound in the sense that uh, there's nothing in us that merits, that deserves God's mercy. He doesn't need us. He is completely self-sufficient, all on his own. I mean, before, before man, you know, he had all of eternity, just the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in community with each other, and that was enough. So he doesn't need us. We don't add anything to him. So the fact that he saves anyone, therefore, is incomprehensibly profound. We can't fully understand this, this infinite Uh, reality with our finite minds, and yet it's simple in the fact that it's expressed in just three words. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. God is love. God is love. Now, in one sense, I know this isn't surprising because I've, I've said this up here before. You guys have probably all heard it before. We sing songs about God being love, and it's an easy thing to embrace and lose our sense of wonder about, lose our sense of astonishment about that God is love. God loved humanity, warts and all, sin and all, not because there was anything in us that demanded that he love us or that deserved that he loved us, but simply because he is love. Now, it's an amazing thing to realize that God loves, that that is an action that he does, but this truth about God is taking it just even a step further telling us that it's not a decision, um, an attitude, or, or even a labor of God, but it, that it's an attribute of God. It's who he is, just like holiness is an attribute of God. I mean, if you were to describe me, you'd say, well, okay, Toby, you're five foot ten, you're bald, you wear glasses, you know, you can go through all sorts of, of, of attributes about me, things that you could say about me that are true of me, whether, you know, whether I get in, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever, whatever I try to change about myself or whatever, that's just who I am by my nature. And that's what we can see about God with his holiness and with his love. It's just who he is. It's an attribute. So who is God when I sin? He's holy and he's love. 
When I sin, God is love. God's love for us is not contingent upon anything that I do, anything that I could possibly say, anything that I could possibly think. His love for us is contingent only on his own nature. You know, I, I, was, I was counseling a guy a few months back, and he told me that the one thing that he wanted from his wife, which he felt like he wasn't getting, was unconditional love. And he, he just went on and on about you know, how he, he didn't feel like his wife loved him unconditionally. And I, I said, well, let me ask you this. Do you think you could go on loving your wife if she doesn't at some point love you unconditionally? And his answer was, no, I, I don't think I could. And so I gently pointed out to him that he's placing conditions on his love for his wife. And thus, he wasn't offering the, conditional, the unconditional love to his wife that he himself was so desperately seeking. Man, we, we love the idea of unconditional love, don't we? That, that's what we all want. I think that's something that we're, we're kind of built, we're kind of designed to need, to crave, to desire. Unconditional love, just somebody love me. Warts and all, flaws and all. And it's, there's not a thing wrong in the world with seeking unconditional love. But we need to realize that we won't find it from a spouse. We won't find it from a friend we won't find it from anyone other than God. All that we can hope to get from a spouse or a friend or whatever is a shadow, just a, a, just a glimpse of what unconditional love looks like. Truly, we can only find it in God. Only God has unconditional love toward us. He doesn't give himself to anyone in order that he might receive some benefit. There's nothing in it for him, in other words. There's no payoff for him. Uh, that is unconditional love. It would be conditional if he said, well, I'll love you if this, 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 and this. No, it's unconditional love. We must, we must understand that God gives himself to us, not for his benefit, but for ours, because he alone is the greatest good. God's love toward people flows from his nature, from who he is, and not from something within us that deserves it, or that's earned it, or merits that unconditional love. And this truth is wonderfully played out in the book of Deuteronomy where we read about why God saved Israel in the first place. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, we read, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So his explanation for why he loves them is basically, I love you because I love you. It's as simple as that. Why did God save them? Not because they were this great nation that could do something for him, not because uh, they'd remained faithful to him throughout the ages, because they definitely hadn't, uh, but because he loved them. Because he loved them, and because he loved them, he swore this oath on his own name to their forefathers to remain faithful to them. We read this in the book of Ezekiel, a great picture of, of how God saved us and why he saved us. Ezekiel 16, verses 3 to 6. Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. Those were all enemies of God, by the way. Those were all pagan nations that hated God. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, 
Your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. In other words, nobody took care of you. Nobody cared about you. Even your own mother didn't care about you. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. So God is specifically describing the people of, of, of Israel in this text. That's who he's speaking to, the people in Jerusalem, the Israelites who are living in Jerusalem. But it's just, an, just as accurate of an assessment of you and me as well, of all of humanity as well. Born in a hostile born of a hostile enemy nation with a shameful history, with an undignified birth, filthy, left for dead in the middle of this field, completely abandoned to our own, wallowing in their own blood. In other words, he's saying that we're all disgusting. We're all dead on our own. And yet, out of his love, based entirely on his nature and not in our beauty or our goodness, he loved us, and thus he reached out to save us. So in accordance with God's holiness, we deserve death when we sin. But in accordance with his love, he desires to save us, to redeem us, to bring us back into fellowship with himself when we sin. And once we understand how these two attributes work, holiness and love, once we understand how they come together, we start to catch a glimpse of understanding of the most important event in all of history, and that was the death of Jesus on the cross. We know how gruesome the punishment he endured at the hands of man was. It was violent. It was bloody. It was barbaric. If you've seen the Passion, uh, you know, Passion of the Christ that came out, what, 10 years ago or so, it's probably a pretty accurate representation. And a lot of people, what was their criticism of the movie? It's too violent. It's too bloody. This is barbaric. Why do we have to see this? It was. It was violent, bloody, and barbaric. But do you know what the most horrific thing that Jesus endured on the cross was. It wasn't the physical pain. It wasn't the nails going through his hands or, or through, his, uh, through his feet. It wasn't the, the lashings that he took as he was scourged. It was the fact that the only man who had known no sin became sin as all of the sin of humanity was laid upon him in one moment. It was all imputed to him. At the moment of his death, Jesus had the weight of every single one of our sins laid upon him. Every evil deed, every evil thought, every evil word, every lie, every theft, every murder, every rape, every addiction, every case of adultery, every case of sexual immorality, all the evil of the worst genocides in the history of the world, the most heinous acts imaginable, they were all cast upon Jesus in one single soul-wrenching moment, and he bore them all, not because he had to, not because he was under any type of obligation to do so, but because he chose to in an act of mercy, which is what we find in the overlap of God's wrath and God's love. So you've got God's wrath over here, God's love over here, and they kind of overlap, and in that overlapping area, that's where we find mercy. God's mercy. At the intersection of God's holiness and love, Jesus not only bore the wrath that we deserved for our sin and bore it with shame, but he actually became our sin 
He became our sin. And as Jesus became our sin in that very moment, for the first time in an eternity of fellowship that he had with the Father, the Father had to turn his eyes away from his Son. The Father turned his eyes away from Jesus, his only Son, fully God and fully man. And so there was Jesus, pierced for our sins, pierced for our transgressions, bearing the wrath that we deserved. And for the first time in eternity, he was left completely alone as the personification, the embodiment of our sin. And it was in the midst of this separation, this moment where the Father has turned away from Jesus, turned away from the Son, that Jesus cries out to the Father, quoting Psalm 22, Why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me here alone? It was more than he could possibly bear. That was the hardest thing for him on Calvary. Not the physical pain, but having the Father turn away from him. And it was in the midst of this agonizing feeling of isolation and separation from the Father that he would surrender his life, surrender his, his, his spirit on our behalf as a sacrifice. So who is God when I sin? God's holy. God is love. And when I sin, God is merciful. See, you, you and I deserve what Nadab and Abihu got when we sin. We deserve death when we sin. Remember how Paul said that the wage of sin was death? He didn't leave it there. He, instead, he gave us a contrast between this horrible reality that the wage of sin is death, and he contrasts it with the most beautiful truth in the world. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an amazing reality. What an amazing... There's no bigger contrast in the entire universe. Our sin has earned us justice, and justice demands death. But if we have trusted in Jesus alone, his work on Calvary, that punishment, the punishment that we deserve, the wrath that we deserve, is instantly imputed, transferred to Jesus. And in turn, his righteousness is imputed to us. And man, this just tears and and wrenches at my heart when when I think about it, that I'm loved and forgiven by a holy God who absolutely hates my sin. He cannot stand my sin. He can't look at my sin, but he's taken the, the, the punishment for this sin that I commit upon himself. My sin is more serious than I could possibly understand with my finite mind, but that's the cost. Jesus bearing my sin, bearing my wrath, that I deserved, that's the cost of me being redeemed into this relationship with God. That's what it took. And the more I grow in Jesus and the more I come to love him more and more, the more the implications of my sin and of his sacrifice become more than my heart can bear when I sin and I realize what the cost was. I see that when I sin, I'm, I, I'm not alone I'm not alone. He's there with me. Jesus is right there with me. He's dealing with my sin. He sees it. He knows about it. And he's doing something about it. He's dealing with my sin. He's being exposed to my sin. And my sin is pushing him to the cross on my behalf. So the last truth that we need to understand here is that when I sin, God is present. He's right there. He's dealing with me. He's dealing with my sin. He offers me this, this relationship with him as a gift to me, as a gift. Not, it's not something that I have earned. It's not something I could possibly deserves, deserve. He, he offers it as a gift 
to me, and a gift, by definition, is unmerited. You don't give somebody a gift because, because they've earned it. That's called a wage. A gift is something that you get that's unmerited. And he offers this gift to me. He offers this gift to you as well and to anyone who will trust in Jesus. And it's a gift that didn't come cheap, but for which we can only offer back thanksgiving and gratefulness. Who is God when we sin? He's holy. He's holy. He's loving. He's merciful. And he's present in order that he can take our sin with him and nail it to the cross in our place. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you did. It's a truth that we cannot wrap our minds completely around. That you would, out of no obligation, but out of your great love for us, that you would go to the cross for us and that you would become our sin. God, my prayer is that that truth would just break our hearts. That it, would, that it would help us to realize how much you love us. When we didn't deserve it, when we didn't do anything to earn it, when we were eternally separated from you by our own doing, you stepped in and did what needed to be done. Jesus, we thank you that when we sin, you don't compromise your integrity. You don't, you don't change who you are. You change who we are. You take that sin away from us. You put it on the cross where we belonged, but where you were in order that we could be with you in this right relationship with you. I pray, Lord, that we would be more willing to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, that we would do that, just that we would take that heart, that attitude more and more as we realize how great your love for us is. May we be so grateful, Lord, that we, would, that we can't bear to live without you. We can't bear to live for anything other than you. And so we give ourselves to you more completely today, Lord, more wholly, in order that we can live for you and for your glory. Thank you for who you are. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.